Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. This is volume 100-something, and it's Postmasters. Travis and I spent eight days in Augusta, Georgia last week covering the Masters and being so grateful and fortunate that we got to be two of the people who got to walk the grounds in an unprecedented year when there were no patrons, and it was very noticeable that there were no patrons because, to me, uh, a lot of you guys may have seen me say it on, on television, on Sports Center, or heard me say it on the Masters podcast for Please Now Driving, that the passion, the intensity, and the energy of the people is the Masters. And that was noticeably absent, but it did not change. The fact that they weren't there was noticeable, but it did not change the emotion and the, the beautiful lifelong dream fulfilled that Dustin Johnson achieved by winning that tournament, the most coveted of all golf tournaments in record fashion. He shot 20 under par to – to win the Masters. And in doing so, he quieted a lot of doubters that he would be able to do that. Four previous times he had been the leader in a major tournament after 54 holes. And this is the first time that he ever was able to close. And he actually admitted to me after the tournament that uh, that he was extremely nervous. And he was did have a little bit of self-doubt as he started the final round a little bit shaky. But ultimately, he was able to overcome that and prove to himself that he could close. And so congratulations to Dustin. Uh, amazing moment for him. And I, I wonder, a, a lot of things stick out to me from our week in Augusta, but I wonder what sticks out most to you. I think the two – biggest things that I took from it were the the silver linings of no patrons at the Masters. And that was, I believe on Thursday, these days kind of all blur together. On Thursday, Tony Finau chips out of the bunker and you hear this celebratory scream. And we look down and it's his wife. Any other tournament, that scream is masked by roars of other fans. And you don't hear it. It doesn't stick out. And then you don't, he even notices it and looks back and gives her this little smile and it was super cool. And then the other one, correct me if I'm wrong, I think was on Saturday, Phil Mickelson on the eighth tee, Phil Mickelson tees off on the eighth tee, hands the club to his caddy. And then his wife, Amy walks over and they walk arm in arm from the tee box to basically where his ball landed. That doesn't happen at the masters. I don't know what tournament that does happen at. There was uh, no, and, and, there was I mean, no rope, so she could walk right up. And we just stood there and took it in. And um, not having the patrons, it took away a lot. But those two silver linings are the biggest – the two moments that I take away from this tournament. Yeah, and then the, there's a third one that I got to see. You and I saw that that Amy and Phil Mickelson moment together, and we saw the, the Tony and Elena Finau – a moment together and we both just had smiles on our faces because it was really neat to experience that for the families because they had the opportunity to get closer to their husbands than they've ever been able to get actually in the throes of competition and and I had another moment that I saw it was Tuesday afternoon as the sun was making its way west I was standing at Amen Corner for our ESPN Plus coverage of the tournament. And I was parked at Amen Corner all by myself. Nobody else around, just me. And as I was standing there, uh, groups were coming through. And Paul Casey uh, was working on chip shots on 11, on the 11th green. Walked up to the 12th tee. And Ricky Fowler and Patrick Reed, I think – I'm, I think that's right. We're actually on the 12th green finishing the hole. So Paul and whomever he was playing with, Patrick Cantley maybe, uh, I forget, but I think it was him, were waiting on the 12th tee for those guys to finish on the green so they could tee off. Well, I tur- as I'm watching, I see Paul Casey turn and feverishly, furiously wave up to the top of the hill where there is a restroom facility at the top of the hill. 
And down the hill comes uh, a woman. And uh, she's kind of sheepish and kind of looking around like, you sure about this? And down she went, and it happened to be uh, Pollyanna, who is uh, Paul Casey's wife. And they took a photograph together at the 12th tee with their backs to Amen Corner. And so Paul goes on and is playing the 12th. And the, the kind of inquisitive storyteller journalist in me thought that was a neat moment. I might want to tell that story on TV. I want to go ask her what, that, what, what happened. So I walked over and I introduced myself to, to Paul's wife, to, to Pollyanna. And I said, hi there. My name's Marty. I'm a reporter with ESPN. And I'm wondering, I, I saw you take that. I, I, forgive me. I presume you're Paul's wife. I, I was ignorant. I didn't know. I didn't want to assume. But I, I said, I, I presume you're Paul's wife. Yes. Hi. Uh, may I ask your name? My name's Pollyanna. Oh, that's a very pretty name. Um, uh, what, what is that photo that you guys just took? And she said, uh, it's, a, there's, it's a lot of things. People don't understand the work that it takes to get here. And, and that's my husband's work, certainly, but it's, it's, it's my, it's, it's the sacrifice that we make as families so that he can chase the dream and we can chase the dream. And she said, I've never been able to get that close to my husband on this golf course before, because there's ropes, because there's people. And, and we took this opportunity to take that picture because we know in our hearts, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's yeah, never, like, we're never going to have that opportunity again. Where she was standing normally would be a giant grandstand of fans and then people standing all around where they can't get a seat. There's no chance she gets anywhere near that close to him. Right. And it was really neat to see her and, and why it, why it was so important. And just to flush that out with her, it was really neat. And I appreciated her time. And later on, uh, I find out that she's like a mega television star in the, in uh, Europe. So that just shows what I know. Uh, so, uh, sorry, Pollyanna. Uh, I, I should have probably known that. Um, but just an amazing experience. We felt like we were able to inject some production elements into the podcast that we know you guys like because we've heard about it, whether that was using writing or music uh, the, the interviews that we got to do with the, the legends of the masters, former champions. If you guys have not heard those, um, I think when you're going on your runs or your walks or your grocery store runs or going to get the donuts or whatever it is you're doing, whatever errands you're doing here coming up on the, in the holiday season, they're really cool interviews, uh, with people like Jack Nicholas and Gary player and Bubba Watson and Phil Mickelson and Marco Mira. We had the opportunity to interview Jim Nance uh, again, which was just a very revealing interview about his just – he's the voice of the Masters and everything that comes with that and, and all of the amazing memories that he has. Just a really great dude. Just a great dude. Yeah, it was a very uh, humbling and blessed to be able to do it, but it was also for us – hands down the most time that we've ever spent with each other. That's what I don't think people realize is I think the last time I saw you was September of 2019 in person. Yeah. We haven't seen each other in a really long time and we got to spend a lot of time together and I had, a, there was some revealing moments during yeah, okay. our time spent together. We've been sitting on this one when I said something, we haven't discussed it because of this. I looked down at you and your socks, they weren't matching. And I made a comment and then you followed up with this. What did you tell me? Travis has obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, he does. He's in denial that he does. And it's okay. It's, it's, it's a fine that he has obsessive compulsive disorder, but he's in denial that he has it. And, so let me give you guys context on what he's talking about. I have a pair of Stance dress socks. I happen to have them on one day at the Masters. And the way that the socks are designed is they are black socks that are have the same color motif 
but they have different designs on each sock with the same colors involved in the sock. So on the left sock, it is blue and red and green, I think, rings of color yes. Yes. down the sock. And then on the right sock, there are like birds perched on limbs in the same color motif, exact same colors. You can't have two different socks. This is, this is, they came together as a union. I know, like, I love stance. I've got socks from stance, but they look like they're not the same sock. I get that the colors are the same, but they're not, it looks like you got dressed in the dark. The funniest part about this is Travis sat on this all day. He waited until we were done with work that day because he didn't want it to, either distract me or I don't know why the hell he waited, but he waited. And he's like, Hey, I got to talk to you about something. I've been sitting on this all day long. Your socks don't match. And I said, well, my socks don't match. They do match. They came together. They are a union. They are a match. Even though they might be different designs, the color is the same. But it, you have to understand how it looks. And then for you, I, how I it looks like, for you. And then I feel like you did this on purpose yesterday when you went and did Marty McGee for TV for SEC Network. You had a pair of J's on and you went Christmas theme with the shoelaces, one red, one green. And not 10 seconds into the show, I saw it and text you. And like, it doesn't match. I had on the. A Star is Born Jordan 1s. And for those of you who are sneaker heads, you will know those shoes. They are the black J's with a white toe that have the multicolored green swooshes on them. And the reason that they're called that is in 1984, Sports Illustrated put Michael Jordan on the cover as a rookie with the Bulls. And the caption the headline on the cover of Sports Illustrated was A Star is Born. And it's Michael, like, either getting a rebound. I think he's getting a rebound. He's way up, way up above the rim. And the, they're playing the Milwaukee Bucks in the photograph on the cover. And back then, the Bucks uniforms were white, and they had this multicolored green border on the neck and the sleeves. And the Chet, the Nike swoosh on those Jordans is the same color scheme as the border of those Bucks jerseys. That's why it's called a Star is Born Ones. Anyway, um, most people who have those J's do what I do. They have a lime green pair of laces and a red pair of laces. Some people choose to go white. Some people choose to go both reds or both greens. But I did what I did, and undoubtedly Travis does. There was actually one other instance. What was the other instance? No, this, this was uh, when you had the music playing, and you left it at, like, 13. And I was like, turn it up or turn it down. And you're like, why? And I'm like, it has to be an even number. Oh, yeah, it has to be an even number. That's right. D yes. So that is, that is consummate obsessive-compulsive. Every number has to be even or odd or it can't whatever so yes I, there were multiple occasions of when it, uh, it became a revelation to me that like travis travis uh needs to just come to grips with the fact that he has ocd i have to call you out on your uh your golf analysis though okay um you know we're gonna have Vern lundquist coming up who is one of the best to ever do it and i think yours needs a little work i don't know who what hole it was, who it was, that doesn't really matter, but there was a really good shot. Ball lands, let's call it 10 feet to the, the pin. We were on and look, 16. And you look over at me and you go, that was a good shot. <laughs> like, thanks, Marty. I, I, I could see as he, you know, as hey, a good birdie attempt. As, you'll, as you guys will hear when we have the legend Vern Lundquist on in just a few minutes, minimalist is the way to go. The less you say, the more you say. That was a good shot. And I, I was in my golf voice, too. That was a good shot. And uh, should we share the advice that I um, learned? Uh, I tweeted it out, but should I share the advice of um, when you're wearing a mask, what not to do? Oh, this is awful. 
So, you know, everyone's got to wear their mask and that's the the thing to do right now. Um, But you need to be careful when wearing the mask for self-harm. And that is if you have to burp. You should probably pull the mask just slightly or something. Do not burp directly into the mask because it's awful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's awful when you've eaten 16 fried chicken sandwiches that day. Y'all... Let me tell you about like that's another thing that I, that I realize is that Travis can really go on the master sandwiches. Each day, we had multiple fried chicken sandwiches, original chicken sandwiches. We had multiple barbecue sandwiches. Most days we had a chicken biscuit and or sausage biscuit for breakfast. Some of those days I I would take the biscuit off to minimize bread consumption, or I took the advice of Andy North, who he said for the egg salad sandwich, take two, take two pieces of bread off, make one big one. I did that with the barbecue sandwich, but yes. Um, it was a spectacle to behold. Um, I saw many, I saw many amazing spectacles, uh, at the masters, but watching Travis go on those sandwiches was, was certainly, I think my body's finally well like up the list. It's, it's starting to like Reject come back you? to normal. Yeah. It's, <laughs> It's a it's a unique week. I mean, it's you have this endless food just right there at your, you know. And beer. I mean, and beer. We Travis I and I cons- made out like bandits with the Masters cups. So I the Masters plastic cup. Two. So the Masters plastic cup is a collector's item. People fawn over these cups. And they didn't have any green cups this year, which is typically reserved for imported beer or American craft beer. They didn't have those this year. They only had the frosted off-white Masters Cups. How many did you walk out of there with? 24, right? Or 30? 24 tall ones, eight small ones. Because what happened was early in the week, they were serving the beer and the tall ones. And then they started serving them in the small ones, and it kind of went back and forth. And so then to acquire more cups – we had to start drinking uh, lemonade or pop or whatever you wanted, non-alcoholic drinks out on the course to get the big cups and also the ones that said Masters 2020. Right. All right. Yeah, I see. So I don't know how many I came home with either, but it was a bunch. So They're, they're perfect because, you know, like say for you, you have people over in the summertime having drinks or whatever, and if someone makes off with one, hey, it's a nice little collector's gift for them. It's awesome. Uh, in fact, I'm giving a bunch of them away. Uh, I will be doing that same. They are so coveted. Um, we have a really special interview for you guys this week. Before we toss to Vern, I have to call you out. I called you oh. out in person, but we've got to do it for the Mass. We, we saw Vern at the Masters at the hotel. And I've seen you around a lot of famous people before. And I don't know if I've ever you've ever had this reaction where you fanboyed and you like took a step back and oh my, it's Vern. And you were like, I don't even know if you actually, you said hello and that was it. Yeah. You you fanboyed over him. I've been a fan of his for so long and just the SEC games of the week on CBS always have this, this air of such a massive event. They just feel really important. And Listening to him and Gary Danielson call those games, it always just felt very, very, very important to me. And when you, when you look at the iconic moments that Mr. Lundquist has called, and we're going to get into a bunch of those in this conversation, it'll blow y'all's minds. And as storytellers go, he's as good as you're ever going. I mean, a masterful storyteller and with a memory – Mr. Lundquist is 80 years old, y'all, and you will be blown away at his memory. He remembers finite, intricate detail and nuance of each of these amazing calls. From Christian Leitner hitting the buzzer beater over Kentucky when Grant Hill threw the pass at the Philadelphia Spectrum in 1992. Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding in the Olympics in 1994. The prayer at Jordan-Hare, and then two weeks later, the kick six in 2013. Tiger Woods, iconic chip on 16 in 2005. Jack Nicholas 
putt on 17 in 1986 at the Masters. On and on. Vern Lundquist called every one of those moments. And so, yes, I fanboyed. I'm cool with it. Uh, I'm, I'm secure in my fanboydom with it Mr. Was, Lundquist. It was right, I think it was right below your story about Jordan. You didn't go <laughs> – but you're right below. You're right below yeah. that level. Yes, yes, I think you're right. I did not. I did not say favor, oh, uh, but I could have. Um, it would have been apro pro, as we say on the Marty McGee program. So, you guys are going to love this conversation. I could have gone on and on. I had I had so many more things I wanted to touch on with Mister Lundquist, but we kept him so long. How long, Trent? Like fifty minutes? Probably 45, 50 minutes. We got a, yeah. I think he was. Uh, more than gracious with his time. He was so much more than gracious. And I couldn't have enjoyed – you couldn't have wiped the smile off my face with a pressure washer the whole time. I just – I loved hearing his – the way he told me the nuance and the and the detail of each moment. But but just the joy that he has in sharing those moments. Uh, fascinating for me, and it will be fascinating for you. So without further ado, here is CBS Sports – Play-by-play icon, storytelling icon, iconic historic moment, documentarian icon, Vern Lundquist. Let's just get started with what you and I both just witnessed at Augusta National Golf Club, an utterly dominant performance by Dustin Johnson. What did you make of that record performance? I, like many others, thought, uh, oh, boy, on Sunday, because he's got such a poor record holding a 54-hole lead in majors. And then when he started out so shakily, and in contrast, Marty, to what he did on on Saturday in the third round, which was a brilliant start, I think all of us uh, who were in broadcasting or the few who were there or the many who were watching on television thought, here we go again. And he, I, I sent a text to Dottie Pepper, uh, who has just been a wonderful addition to our broadcast team, I yep. think. And uh, when when uh, Dustin hit his tee shot on six, which is a hole I, I get to broadcast, he was six feet away. And Dottie said before he struck the putt, this might be a defining moment in his final round. If he can right the ship here. And then uh, in his press conference afterwards, he said one of the key shots was the putt on 12, uh, on six rather. And it settled him down. And then he was rock solid and he finished uh, with a flourish. And uh, he he deserved a win. Uh, My gosh, a 20 under par seemed appropriate in 2020, didn't it? Yeah. But all... Honor and accolades go to him. He, it's richly deserved, and I loved his uh, interview with Amanda Balionis. I just I didn't see it till I got home that night, and I was just struck by his allowing us inside a little bit. That's a side of Dustin Johnson that I don't think the public has ever seen before. So all in all, good week. Kudos for the. Augusta National for being able to pull it off. Uh, kudos to ESPN and CBS for being able to pull it off. You noted there that Johnson uh, had never closed when he held a 54-hole lead. What do you think that victory proved about him and to him? I think it proved that he's one of the best golfers in the world, as if we needed proof. He's been number one. Well, he is number one this year, but he was number one in 2017. But this was uh, a validation of his status in golf. Uh, And I don't think – I think people would have still been doubters about who he was and what he was and what what he was made of. I think it was really, really – somebody said a coronation, I guess, in a way. I don't think he has any king-like aspirations. So (laughs) (laughs) You and I were two of the fortunate people that got to be there. Yeah. And got to be immersed in a very unique and unprecedented Masters tournament. For those who didn't get to stand on the grounds, what did it look like to you? Weird. (laughs) Empty. Because I know all the guys who participated in the tournament to a person 
I think, uh, may, uh, referred to the absence of patrons. Uh, we noticed uh, that the people who are lucky enough to attend, and many have found their place in the lineup that uh, allows them to come back and forth forever and ever and ever, and those tickets are very precious, and people realize that. But those people make the tournament, I think. I've said many times, I was so lucky to be at, at 17 and 86 when Jack sank the putt. I have in my life, now obviously I've heard a lot about Aurora's, you get, you get 102,000 at Bryant Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa, and they can make a little noise. Yeah, they can. And you can 93,000 at LSU, and they can make even louder noise. Yes, they can. Especially when properly fueled. Yeah, tuned up on that Jack Daniels, Vern. Yeah. Those, those folks get it done, don't they? Oh, Marty, they hate it when we grab, a, grab an LSU home game and put it on at 3.30 in the afternoon because we cut into their drinking time. <laughs> uh, they're, uh, but, but, I always say they're a bunch of pirates, man. They're ready to take the booty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I love doing games there. I loved, did love it. And, and same thing with all the SEC schools. But, to, I mean, I just think the absence of people on the grounds was so overwhelmingly noticeable. And, and I think all of us who were lucky enough to be on the air tried. Once the, once the, the, the point was established, okay, let it go. We don't have to say it over and over and over and over. There's nobody here. You could see there was nobody there. And you could sense it. And I think it, uh, it didn't diminish from what was, what was accomplished there because what was accomplished I don't know, you know, well, I don't want to denigrate any other people who put on golf tournaments, but I think Augusta National, forget this year, but every year puts on, it's the best organized uh, golf tournament in the world, I believe. And uh, to have done it in the face of a pandemic and to have successfully gotten from A to B to Z and crowned a champion was a magnificent accomplishment. But I certainly hope in April we will be able to have people back in the stands. It's it's an unknown right now, but we can hope for that. Completely agree. You noted 1986. I want to kind of go through a checklist of the amazing Vern Lundquist calls uh, in a moment. But first, let's talk Tiger in 2019. I've never witnessed anything like that in my career of covering uh, collegiate and professional sporting events. It was, speaking of coronations, uh, I think that's an, an applicable term for what we saw for Tiger. How would you describe what you saw from him in April of 2019 at Augusta? Incredible. Because it came out of nowhere. I, well, obviously, not out of nowhere. Tiger never comes out of nowhere. But I was certainly among those who – uh, when he was in the lowest of lows because of his own personal actions and because of the back surgeries. So he had some physical and emotional things that, with which he had to, he had to cope. And uh, I, I, I know he had a successful 2018 finish, but this was the Masters, and I just didn't see that coming at all. And then I think his excellence, his awareness, his knowledge of that golf course. Uh, when four guys around him dumped it in the water at 12, and he just very calmly said, I'm not going for that pin. <laughs> and I know Jack Nicholas has been quoted as saying, when he hit it safely on the 12th and all others around him had, had gotten wet, uh, Jack said the tournament was over. Well, he had a little more work to do. Um, but when, and I, I, let me throw in a word for my colleagues here. Uh, the greatest contribution those of us who are blessed to be on the air can make to any broadcast is to shut up. We've got so many gifted technicians broadcast guys, you know, uh, videographers and sound technicians and videotape operators, let them do their work. Well, 
Jim Nance and Nick Faldo, sir, Nick Faldo, sorry. <laughs> I don't want to get my hand slapped. When Tiger raised his arms in a way that I never, ever, ever envisioned him doing. I mean, the release of joy by him at, at, uh, at the 72nd hole uh, was just overwhelming. And then Jim and Nick laid out Marty for two minutes and 31 seconds. That is an eternity in our business. My personal record is one minute, 21 seconds. <laughs> and they I, got you, Vern. They got you by a minute. They doubled me. I know. <laughs> Not that I was counting it. I was just in, in awe of that whole scene. That when his son jumped in his arms. Oh, beautiful. If you didn't shed a tear, you ain't got a soul. I just thought it was a wonderful moment. And, that, and then to see the Masters champions lined up. And uh, in, in, in a congregation, it's one of my favorite memories in all the years I've done sports. Uh, I never thought I would see something like that. Agree. And that's quite a statement, you know, coming from you. I, I mean, you're so right that one of the most impactful things, but one of the most difficult things to do as a broadcaster is say nothing because it mm -hmm. takes tremendous self-confidence to say nothing. How did you evolve? in that way? What was the challenge of learning that? I had some pretty good role models. Two of the guys whom I admired when I was young in the business. Uh, the first was Ray Scott. And, and now young people, I mean, we're two generations removed from that. And this was in, I was in my 20s and 30s. And Ray Scott was the master minimalist. I don't think we've ever had anybody quite like Ray. Ray did the first and second Super Bowls for CBS. He was the voice of the Green Bay Packers and was legendary in the 60s and 70s. And I was blessed. I got to know him, know him very well. Here is a typical Ray Scott Packer touchdown broadcast. Star, Dowler, touchdown. <laughs> kind of said it all. Yep. And, and, and the other guy that I learned a lot from and, and uh, was Pat Summerall. Oh, yeah. I mean, Pat was another master minimalistic. Pat was the greatest counterpuncher I think we've ever had in broadcasting because he could take just the most obvious example is John Madden. John was allowed the freedom to go anywhere he wanted in the telecast. And he was surrounded by people who cared about him and and wanted to to support him bob stinner and sandy grossman his producer and director for all the years he was at cbs they could move the needle that people would watch if they were doing the game most of us they're going to watch the game and if you happen to be doing it don't get in the way but john and howard cosell could move the needle in john's case because of great anticipation in Howard's case, because you never know what he was going to say. <laughs> and, and, uh, but both were brilliant in their own ways. But when John would wander, and he did a lot, Pat always had the ability to say something that was on mark and to, to get them back into the broadcast. And, and Pat's knack for doing that was not, not often noticed, except by those of us who are lucky enough to do this for a living. Uh, but he was another. So those two were examples for me. And I was too verbose. I still am. We all are. There's not a one of us of whom you couldn't say, dial it back. And, and uh, I think this, uh, I happen to think, I saw an article this morning that uh, published in the New York Post that Jim Nance is asking for Tony Romo's money. <laughs> I never dreamed I'd live long enough to see this. Uh, <laughs> holy cow. <laughs> and, and God bless him. I hope he gets it. And then buys dinner for the rest of, for me for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Jim... Jim is as hard a working guy as I've ever known in, in this business. And he has, first of all, he doesn't over talk to sport. I think he's the best 
golf host we've ever been we've ever been around because he loves the sport and it shows through. But more than that, he's got a, a, a knack and ability to often he he does his homework. He hangs around after the tournament, after the day is concluded, and talks with the guys he knows will be on the air the next day. And he can save these little nuggets. And then at the absolute most appropriate time, he'll drop something in. And he, uh, I mean, I sit there and I go, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> and he, yeah, yep. he's got me. And, and those kinds of, I mean, I did one of Jim's very first, but we laugh about it now. The late Steve Davis and I did the blue gray game in Montgomery, Alabama on Christmas day in 1986. Not exactly the idea of where you'd want to send Christmas, <laughs> but we were there and it was freezing. And our sideline reporter in his first year at CBS was this guy named Jim Nance. And uh, he sat across from Nancy and me at Christmas Eve dinner. And uh, I tried to give him a little sage advice and uh, how pompous of me, but uh, yeah, we, we, we laughed about that last year. We were reminiscing because we worked a lot together. So that's a long winded answer, but book. it's fabulous. It's just so rich. I love every bit of it. You know, well, you, thank you. You've been the soundtrack to so many iconic copyright sporting moments. I wonder what you believe. What call is your signature moment? Well, it's default for me. First of all, just as a bit of background, all of us who are blessed to do this go into an event hoping, A, that we're prepared properly, yep. and that's grunt work, and people don't see that, nor, they, nor should they. They don't need to know. This is like a boxer. You know, once he's in the ring, you don't care that he ran 16 miles on Monday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, that's necessary, the preparation. But, A, you, you go into an event and you hope that something memorable might occur. And it's more than a more than hundred to one shot. I mean, most of the events we cover are forgotten on our way to the airport. Uh, and that's, I, that's too trite, but uh, you hope something memorable happens. And then most significantly, you hope that you have the awareness and the confidence and the knowledge to be equal to that moment in your description of it. So with that as a background, uh, my, my default, and it, it's probably age-related, Mr. Nicholas is six months older than I, so I call him Mr. Nicholas. <laughs> he does say, I'm Jack. <laughs> but it would, be, it would be the Masters in 86. It is the first one that I've probably received any acknowledgement about. And I've seen it 5,416 times. <laughs> and last year in, 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 the, in the clubhouse at Augusta, after the champion's dinner, I was, Nancy and I were blessed to be the guest of a member that night. Uh, and we had dinner in the trophy club. And that's, believe me, I, I looked around and thought, boy, it's a long way from college in Seguin, Texas. Uh, <laughs> who making a buck five an hour as a weekend radio announcer on KWED, 1580 on your radio dial. The champion's dinner was a floor above us. And it broke up and the, and the members and the champions came down in there in their jackets. Well, a lot of the players' wives were uh, scattered around our room having dinner. Barbara Nicholas was right behind us. So Jack and Ben Crenshaw were chatting, and, and uh, I joined the conversation. We talked about that moment, and uh, that was a real thrill for me. To And uh, I, I did have a point here. <laughs> No, I, I'm intrigued what was said when well, you guys are remembering. Well, I, I, I said, Jack, you know, that moment and yes, sir, gets gets played almost every time I'm on some speaking venue. I use it all the time. But Jack and I talked about, and I believe this, what helped make that, first of all, it was Jack Nicholas. Mm -hmm. 
And he had taken the lead at the age of 46. But what made the call resonate with that moment is inadvertently, when I said, yes, sir, Jack punctuated the air almost like a conductor uh, in front of an orchestra with a downbeat. And he went, yes, sir. And it was, a, it was a physical emphasis added to the statement. Now, that's a little philosophical. And we're making, we're trying to make cordon bleu out of chicken breast. <laughs> well, it's no uh, less true, though. It's no less true. It's, yeah. it's, it's so that we talked about that. And Jack is not given, one given over to you know, long, lengthy conversations about something he did or I said. So, it, it, you know, it was, it, that was in passing, though. So you noted the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding thing. I Ooh. can't imagine anything being weirder than being the narrator of that soap opera. What was that like? Uh, bizarre, uh, like a cartoon come to life. Uh, Scotty Hamilton, is, uh, with whom I worked that event and uh, remains one of my dear, dear friends in this business as a colleague and just as a all around wonderful person. And we did, he does a weekly podcast. So it gave us a chance to converse yet again about for Scott and for me, uh, the most bizarre thing I, in which I've ever been involved. And uh, it was a cartoon come to life. You know, it all started uh, in Detroit, Michigan, January 6th, 1994. Not that I've forgotten anything about it. But <laughs> I, I, that was where the U.S. National Figure Skating Championships were, were held. And that was where the composition of the U.S. Olympic team for the 94 games in Norway was going to be established. And I, was, I arrived around 6 on a Wednesday. We were observers of that event. ABC was doing it, but we were getting ready for the Olympics. We wanted to be present. And I got in the rental car in a driving snowstorm at six o'clock in the evening. And I tuned to the all news radio station and I said, and in the Nancy Kerrigan attack. <laughs> what? <laughs> so that's when I heard about what had happened. And that night, Marty, uh, there was a buffet dinner, uh, hosted by the U.S. Figure Skating Association, to which we were invited. And the buzz was all about the incident that occurred that morning when some guy had whacked Nancy on her left thigh in an attempt to break her leg, thus take her out of the Olympic Games. And I had a member of the of a senior vice president of the U.S. Figure Skating Association say to me, when we get to the bottom of this, and we will, Tanya Harding will be involved. Wow. They had a suspicion immediately. And it doesn't speak very well of Tanya and the perception of her uh, even then. And, of course, that perception just grew as this cartoon came to life. And ultimately, it, it was determined that it was her ex-husband who had hired this thug named Shane Stant and said, you know, take her out. It'll enhance Tanya's chances of making the team. Really? That's what this was all about. And that started it. And uh, through legal processes back and forth, uh, Tanya was placed on the team. She was kicked off appeal, won the appeal. She's back on. Nancy did not have a fractured leg, but it was heavily bruised. And she was given six weeks to skate before the U.S. Figure Skating Association and for them to determine if she was capable of competing. Well, she was. And Tanya was there. And on the Wednesday night when they finally competed against each other, we had a rating that was just un unimaginable and still is the highest rated non-Super Bowl sporting attack. Uh, event ever held. Scott and I went to the practice the next morning after the ladies uh, compulsory skate 
Neil Pilsen, our president, walked by where Scott and I were watching practice. He said, you guys hear the rating last night? No, we didn't. Well, we had a 48.5. Good gracious sakes. And the estimated audience was 126 million people. Now, that's been scaled back. And Scotty looked at Neil and said, I'm so glad I didn't know that before we went on the air. You know, (laughs) I I would have been exactly so memorable. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And, And, you know, it's the passage of time is so evolutionary that young people have no idea about that event. People born in 1990 have no, what, what are you talking about, Nancy and Tanya? But uh, those of us who were there and those of us who watched will never forget it. I got a couple more. Uh, I've already kept you too long, but no problem. I will never forget. I will never forget being a sophomore in high school and watching Grant Hill take that basketball and throw a absolute laser beam to the top of the circle. And I'll let you take it from there. It was, uh, that was an impossible, another impossible moment that you called. I won't forget it either, Marty. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Imagine not. March 28th, 1992. Duke and Kentucky were one and two seeds in the, in the region. Uh, the game was held in, in, uh, in, at the Spectrum in Philadelphia, but Duke was heavily favored. Uh, Kentucky was coming off probation. Rick Pitino was the coach at Kentucky and, and of course, Mike Krzyzewski at, at Duke. So you had two of the, uh, even then, the premier coaches in the country. But Duke had Leitner and Duke had Grant Hill and Duke had Brian Davis and, and Bobby Hurley and on and on and on. Kentucky had uh, the, the four unforgettable. The unforgettables, yeah. yeah. Kentucky came from 12 down in the second half and the game went back and forth and still is regarded by many who uh, rate these things as the greatest college basketball game ever played. And the the key part of it, well, there were two. You really got to reach back in the memory bank, but Leitner probably, he was the star of the game. He was brilliant, but he should have been thrown out in the second half. For stomping on 25, yeah. right? Yeah. Amino Timberlake. Yeah. There you go. Yep. And uh, he, I mean, he took his 14, size 14 and just put it right in his uh, bread basket while Timberlake was lying on the floor. And Lenny Elmore, my wonderful partner, said, I'm not sure, so sure he intended to do that. And I just almost blurted out, Yes, he did. <laughs> and he did. And, and years later, on the 20th anniversary, CBS brought the three of us together, Lenny, myself, and Kristen Leitner, and they videotaped us watching a tape of the game. And we got to that point, and we showed it, and Leitner said, I just knew you guys were going to show that. And I said, <laughs> well, how could we not? You know, it was, it was critical, and, and uh, he wasn't kicked out. But anyway, Sean, uh, the Kentucky guard, um, Woods. Thank Sean you. Woods. You know, you, you hit 80 and just little thing to start. <laughs> so I need a prompter now. Uh, anyway, uh, Sean Woods hit a miraculous shot in the lane over Christian later, banked off and went through. And uh, Leitner said later in that taped conversation that they were drilled and disciplined. If something happens like that, immediately call time. And Christian said he reached up and, and looked at the official and went like this, and his four teammates on the floor were all doing the same thing. So they were drilled in that moment. Don't waste a second call time. And they went over, and they had tried to play that pass from Grant Hill to Christian Leitner. They had tried it earlier in the season in a Wake Forest game. Now, we didn't know this until long after the game. And, and Grant tried to throw it, and he put too much spin on it, and it curved to the left and went out of bounds. Mike looked at Grant and said, can you complete the pass? And Grant said, yes, sir. And he looked at Leitner and he says, can you catch it? 
<laughs> and Leitner said, I think I can. <laughs> and so they, they and, and Rick Pitino to this day, living in, back in New York City and coaching at Iona, I'm sure wakes up every morning and thinks, why didn't I put somebody on Grant Hill to guard the inbound pass? Yep. And Hill made it, and Leitner went 10 for 10 and 104-103. I could sit here all day and listen to these. Um, I have just a couple more. So sure. in a two-week span in 2013, you call two of the most unbelievable college football finishes in the history of the game. The game's been around 150 years. <laughs> And you call the prayer at Jordan Hare and the kick six in a two-week damn span. I can't imagine what I, I don't even know. I don't even know what question to ask other than well, let me tell let me let me tell you the fun, not not the fun part, the most memorable part of the first game, uh, Georgia Auburn. We're going off the air, and Gary Danielson, my wonderful partner. Said that's the greatest play in college football I've ever seen. You're never, ever, ever going to see anything. <laughs> and we waited two weeks. Two weeks, yeah, yeah. But the, the thing that punctuates it for me, Marty, is that Gary was was so affirmative in his assertion that nobody's ever going to see anything like this again. And then, of course, we had to kick six. And- How do you even describe the kick six? I've, I mean, of course. We, we all know the iconic calls. I can't imagine what it must have been like being the person who has the microphone in your hand. And I remember Gary saying, I, th- I think this is accurate. I think I remember Gary saying, he's going to kick a field goal? Yeah. 28 yep. all. He's going to kick a field goal? And then 99 kicks this field goal. And then Chris Davis happens. And now the kids got statues. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, well, go back even further because the senior place kicker had missed three of four in that game yeah. for for Alabama and had one blocked. Nick was irritated at him, but Auburn scores on a thirty-seven yard pass with thirty some seconds to go and ties the game up twenty-eight all. And there's so much that happened before we ever got to the finish including A.J. McCarron throwing a 99-yard touchdown pass to Amari Cooper opening minutes of the fourth quarter. So now we're tied at, at 38, and they kick off, and T.J. Yeldon, the running back on the, on the play prior to the field goal attempt, goes left and gets into Auburn territory and steps out of bounds. And Matt Austin, the referee, and I heard Matt and I are good friends. We became really good friends after that game. <laughs> he's the referee. And I heard from him this week, as a matter of fact, he's doing – he's the rules analyst for the SEC network now. Yep, yep. And one of the best referees the SEC, I think, has had in decades. But – and he's retired. But anyway, Yeldon goes out of bounds, and there's no time in the clock. Tied. We're going to overtime. And Nick threw the challenge flag. And so what happened then was just extraordinary. You know, the, the rule is, I don't even remember now, two minutes. You're supposed to make the decision yep. in two minutes. Well, they kept, we showed them every replay we had. And uh, they kept asking for us. And I kept, I'd hit the all key, or the cough key, rather, uh, to talk back to the producer. While Gary was talking, and that means I can – I can turn my back and push a key and it kills my mic. And I'm talking to the producer and I said, what are we doing? What's going on? And he said, uh, the officials and the replay booth are asking for us to, to uh, synchronize the game camera and the end zone camera to get them synced up so that they can see precisely when Yeldon's foot hit out of bounds. It took them seven minutes. Wow. And in the meantime, we're, we're just emptying a bucket. Uh, we got nothing. We got nothing to say. <laughs> nothing. So let's go back and say it again. Well, we learned to say it again four or five times. And, <laughs> and, and you think they've got to make a call here pretty quickly. 
And and when they did, Matt Austin came on and said, please put one second on the clock. Well, that's when Gary said, they're going to kick a field goal. We thought they'd throw a Hail Mary. So he sent this redshirt freshman out who had tried two field goals all year. During the confusion, the special teams coordinator for Auburn made a substitution in that spot under the goalpost. And he put Chris Davis back there. Davis did not. And, and, uh, and then, of course, my favorite part of the whole thing, Davis comes and here again, it's like Nicholas's putt or Tiger's ship shot. I've seen this a few times. And, and uh, Davis comes up and then cuts left and goes down the sidelines. And he gets a couple of blocks, a couple of really good blocks. And then when he hits the 50, unless he trips and falls, he's going to score. And he goes into the end zone. And I share this with you. I said, there are no flags. And I thought for that long, dear God, don't let there be any. <laughs> and, uh, and then we laid out, and that's the I – mean, while ago, I was congratulating Jim and Nick about laying out in Augusta. Well, Gary and I didn't say a word for a minute and 21 seconds after the score. And Steve Milton, our director, should have been placed at the top of the Emmy Award list for that year, but he didn't get it. He made 21 camera cuts. He was conducting a symphony, and he was, he was brilliant. And Gary and I just watched. We were mesmerized. And he would go wide shot, close up, medium shot, follow Saban off, wide shot, dejected kid, euphoria, like that. And then finally, Craig said, Craig Silver said to me, let's roll the replays. And I said, well, you might want to see that again. And we, we only showed three replays. And the last of which was Gary, is, is, Gary takes it and he's talking about, you know, Alabama had their field goal protection team on the field. And he said, no wonder Davis scored. Alabama didn't have any athletes. They only had fat guys. <laughs> uh, it's just amazing. All right, I got, I got one more. Uh, sure. this is, I can't describe to you how rich this is for me. It's just really fun for me. The chip. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the chip. Uh, just just – just probably the most viewed shot in the history of the game of golf. I think so. And the way it unfolded and the way that you called it and, and the fact that that ball sat on the side of that cup for what seemed like a decade, boom. I, I, walk me through that moment and, and kind of how that unfolded for you and why you said what you said. Sure. Uh, well, Tiger hits an eight iron and he had a one shot lead over Chris DeMarco when they're on the tee at 16, uh, Sunday in 2005. And, uh, I have no idea what happened with that shot. Uh, one of our analysts could, could dictate where's Peter Costas when we need him, <laughs> he'd break it down. Uh, but he hit it long and left. And so Lanny Watkins was in the tower at 18 at the time. And uh, as Tiger stood over the chip shot and we went back and re I, I was, was out there on Wednesday of last week with uh, the master's uh, film crew to recreate that shot. And oh. I, so I stood where his, his shot was right in front of a drain Uh and so I stood there and I, I had done it before. I'd gone out, I guess, the year after the chip shot to, to just in my mind, remember what had happened. So, but I was back there less than a week ago or uh, one week ago today. And, uh, and we recreated the whole thing. And matter of fact, Billy Horschel was playing a practice round while we were there. And the, awesome. the hole was cut where it usually is on Sunday. Uh, in that Wednesday practice round, and Billy said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "We're we're re reliving the the moment in 05. Anyway, uh, when Tiger walked walked around it and looked at it, uh, 
and you could see what he was thinking. You know, he had to hit it for a severe 25-foot, 30-foot uh, uh, roll down the hill, and it had, he had to hit a perfect chip, and it was. But Lanny said on the air, and DeMarco was 20 feet below the hole, one shot back with, uh, with a birdie opportunity, a realistic one. And Lanny said, you know, Tiger's going to be lucky if he can keep his chip shot inside of DeMarco's ball. He said that on the air. So that gave everybody a reference point that how difficult this was going to be. And he hit the chip and took a right turn and starts tumbling down the hill. And I, I said what I said. Uh, yeah. And when it came to, to rest on the lip of the cup, and it was 1.8 seconds. Wow. Yeah. And you got 10, but so he didn't want to waste all the time. <laughs> he only took slightly less than two seconds. And what I did, Marty, is as Tiger was coming up, uh, was I just, I expressed what I think everybody who was watching it felt. Yes, that's, the, that's, that's beautiful. Like that. And so I said, in your life, have you ever seen anything like that? Well, I do want to tell you a little bit about technically how that was covered. Here's where I want to pay accolades because how we all viewed that shot was based on the intuitive decision by our technical director, a guy named Norm Patterson, who sadly passed away less than a year after that uh, chip shot. And the way things are set up in the truck, the producer, Lance Barrow, was sitting to the far left and in front of this wall of monitors that uh, show pictures of all the cameras that are around the golf course. Lance is in charge of the editorial product. He is in charge of replays. Uh, he's the overall chief executive of our golf telecast crew. In the middle is Steve Milton, the director, the same guy that I just paid uh, accolades to for his coverage of the Alabama-Auburn kick six game. Steve, as I think, maybe, well, I, other guys would say the same thing about their lead guys. They're the best we have. But I think Steve Milton can take a chair uh, with the triumvirate of the best directors in sports television. So he's in the middle. He's the guy who issues the commands. And he says, and just hypothetically go through this. Uh, Bob Wishney was the cameraman, now retired, but he was the cameraman with me in the tower at 16. And hypothetically, let's call him camera 10 for this. And, and then over to my left and to, he was almost in a, in a line with Tiger as he stood over the chip shot, is Skip Shackelford. And his job is to frame Tiger to get a reaction. And he doesn't follow the ball at all. He follows Tiger. Tiger's face. Right. Yeah, exactly. So as the ball is coming up and then turns right and goes tumbles down the hill, as it sits, as it begins to sit on the lip of the cup, and it's apparent to everybody in the Western world that it's not going to, he's going to come up an inch short. Steve Milton says to his technical director sitting to his right, ready six, take six. He's on camera 10. Ready six, take six. And Norm Patterson intuitively decided to wait just a second. Wow. And that's a firing offense. If you don't observe, uh, if you don't adhere to the command of the captain of the ship, you're out of here. Yeah. And so had, had Norm just gone and pushed the button, what you would have seen is Tiger's face, but you wouldn't have seen the ball drop. And if you think about it, it changes everything about no it. No Even doubt about memory. it. And, and Norm... Uh, just in, instinct and intuition and experience and confidence in his knowledge of the game said, eh, not so fast, Gonzalez. That just gave me chills. Mm. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I, I can't begin to tell you how much fun this has been for me. And well, 
how grateful I am for, for you and your time. And I have been a fan of yours since I was a little guy. And mm. so not to make you feel old, I'm just saying. No, no, no. You don't need to help me make, make me feel old. <laughs> I feel it every morning when I try to crank my body out of bed. <laughs> uh, thank you, Mr. Lundquist, so much. Oh, uh, Marty. It's great it's joy. Vern. It's Vern, please. Yes, sir. Okay, we're colleagues. Yes, don't sir. Forget that. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, sir. Have an amazing day. Stay safe. Have a great holiday season, and uh, we'll see you down the line, brother. Thank yeah, you. you bet. See you down the road. Really appreciate Mr. Lunk was sharing his time and amazing sense of humor. It's watching him laugh uh, just makes me smile. Really appreciate him. And guys, before we get out of here, I want to remind you to check out Stupidity. My boy Stu Gotts will have you cracking up the entire time. He is an idiot, but he's my kind of idiot. Download and subscribe to Stupidity and Marty Smith's America wherever you get your podcast. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you so much. Really appreciate our law enforcement officials in these little towns, big cities all over the country, working hard to keep our community safe. Thank you to our first responders, fire and rescue, for risking your lives to save lives. And thank you so much to the United States military for your sacrifice. Uh, Veterans Day was last week, and we're so appreciative of every one of you guys. We didn't do a podcast last week because we were doing the Masters podcast all week long. Didn't get the opportunity then to say thank you so much to all of our veterans who've served this country to ensure and preserve that we have the greatest country, a free nation, where we can go and do and be whatever we want if we want it bad enough. Thank you all. This is Marty Smith's America. Have an amazing week. We'll see you next time around.